Dad's blood history. All I'm saying is this. Yeah. Going ahead and just terraforming our nation might be the best mm-hmm. solution to these problems. Like, let's stop <laughs> yeah. thinking small, shall we? Yeah, the whole thing. Just get those earth movers and get yeah. to work. Rockies in your way, knock them down. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's get doing this. All right, so Benedict Arnold, traitor, vulture, American hero. Happy Independence Day and welcome to Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the infamous American turncoat, Benedict Arnold, and how his legacy is more complicated than it may appear. However, before we get into that, Eric, how was your week? My week, sir. I don't, I never... Your week's just blurs because you're on summer break right now. Yeah, I... Yeah, it's, I, I, I rarely know what day it is. Just a, okay. It's just a mess. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I actually had a great conversation this week. I'm running okay. this basketball program, and I was talking to a couple parents afterwards, one of whom um, is fairly successful in his field. And <clears throat> he... He was talking to me and he says, you know, one of the the worst comments people make to me from where I come from is must be nice. And he says he hears that term a lot. And and so I sat I stood there and I and I thought about that. I'm like, yeah, that I I told him I never thought about that before. When somebody says must be nice. What they're saying is. I don't have that experience and I want you to know that I don't have that experience and that you maybe should feel a little guilty that you have more than I do mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And, and the mom that was there as well, she kind of chimed in. She said, right. People say that all the time must be nice. And that just, they both said it, it bothers them. To hear that, because one, there's an expectation that they shouldn't have some nice thing, but then there's also this, this like guilt thing on it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought on this for a little bit, and I realized I do hear this a lot from people as a teacher. It must be nice to have the summers off, and. And I've thought that through. You've been a teacher, Jake. You know what it's like to have summers mm-hmm. off. It is nice having eight weeks yeah. of, you know, not having to go to work. But that's also two months where you're not that you're not getting paid, but there's two months where you're not making more money or you're not you're not making an income because as you as a teacher, you're you're paid for ten months of work. Over 12 months. Yeah, they just, they, yeah, that's exactly it. I could get spread out. I still get my paycheck, but it's from my 10 months of work earlier. mm -hmm. And if I was actually employed full time as a teacher, 12 months of the year, and you took my 10 months of pay and you said, well, because I basically don't earn money one sixth of the year. Yeah. 
And, uh, and what's interesting about that is, as a teacher, it's like they've broken it out, and they're like, "Oh, well, you get paid all the, all this money," which is ridiculous. But you get all this money, and you get two months off, and it's like, okay, well, if you actually break out how many hours we put in, mm-hmm. a teacher puts in on a given day or a given week, it far exceeds the eight-hour yeah. average that most work days comprise of. You're getting there before everyone else. You're at school after everyone else. And if you're doing sports, then you're staying for two to three hours later on those days, not to mention all the school events that you have to go to um, because you're a teacher. And then there's sometimes stuff on the weekend too. Like they go in and they say, well, it must be nice as a teacher. It's like, yeah, the summer break is nice, but it's earned. Like it's not, it's not given. It's earned. Yeah. Well, it was just a funny, interesting conversation because I listened to that part and I kind of internalized it, and thought about it. I was like, yeah, that that phrase can be very problematic when you say that to somebody. And I was thinking, however, oh, go ahead. But but then I was thinking, like, yeah, when people say that to me, I have to think through. Well, yeah, it is nice, but. Keep in mind these, this list of facts that also go in into that. Yeah, I agree. But then on the other hand, and I'm not saying it's with this parent, but on the other hand, there are people who can't help but tell you about their European vacation they just took or this boat that they bought. Yeah. Like they just have to tell you about it. And then your only response is goes, well, that must be nice. Like, yeah. I, I mean, tone and context can change that conversation pretty quickly too. Um, yeah. I find that usually when I, I hear about somebody's extravagant trip and, and I've got a lot of students who take that or, or have these uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I try to be, I try to be like excited, like for them. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. That sounds like a great trip. Like I'm, I, I'm so glad you get to do that. Enjoy it. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, but, but yeah, it's that must be nice type of, mm-hmm. there's a, there's something implied with that particular phrase. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, I mean, I don't even know what day it is. So All right. Sunday. I, I do know it's Sunday and I have things on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I got to kind of keep track of some days. Okay. Um, well, my end here. So my wife, uh, actually was gone, um, over the weekend. She left actually Wednesday. Um, and she came back today. So Sunday. So she was gone for about four days, went to visit her mom. Her mom was going to have a surgery, uh, this weekend. I got postponed, um, until mid next week. So unfortunately she wasn't there for that, but she had a, a lovely weekend with her mom. So I stayed home with the kids and, uh, it was good. It was a really good, good, good time with the kids. Uh, I did try to take them to the new Minions movie, but my son was not having it. So we had to, we had to leave about halfway through. Um, it, it was too scary for him. And it's really loud in movie, like movie theaters today. I don't go to a lot of movies and maybe that's why, but like they seem just unnecessarily loud. And like when that Dolby digital intro that comes in at the beginning of the movie. How old are we? And like a t- <laughs> I know. I still like, uh, turn it down. 
Well, it's funny because I was talking to Jeff about this yesterday. Is when I go to the movies, I put in earplugs. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, well, that sounds like a good idea, Jeff. Like I should have done that. But anyway, I mean, the, the the half of the movie we watched is good, but trying to force him to watch, he did not want to be there, and it was upsetting him. And so we're like, all right, buddy, well, let's let's head home. But. They got a giant tub of popcorn that they destroyed. Um, oh, you so. Well, yeah. yeah, my wife and I went on Wednesday to see Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through that, I turned to her and I said, I, I need to take my oldest son. And she said, oh, yeah, you're taking him. And I said, I'll take him on Friday. So I saw that on Wednesday and then I took him on Friday. I surprised him, told him we were going to go get the Xbox fixed. And uh, we're walking. He's like, where's the store? You know, I'm not carrying an Xbox. He doesn't. That doesn't register. And That's not what clues him off. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, there's the theater. I'm like, yeah, it sure is. Hey, let me go ask one of these guys where this store is. And he's just looking around. So we go into the theater. They don't even check your tickets when you walk in the door. They check them at the concession stand, which is kind of weird. Hmm. And uh, walk in. I stand in line. And I'm like, do you know why we're here? He's like. Well, you're going to get the Xbox fix, aren't you going to ask him? I'm like, do you want to see a movie? He's like, well, no, Dad, we got to see the, we got to get the Xbox fixed. We got to get the Xbox fixed, Dad. And I'm like, but do you want, do you want, why don't we watch Top Gun over here? He's like, Dad. And he kind of gives you that, you know, look at Dad. Yeah. And I'm like, let's watch Top Gun. He's like, he's kind of smiling at me. I'm like, God bless you. And, uh, Thanks. and I'm like, that's why we're here, but we're here to watch Top Gun. The and Xbox is not getting fixed. Just shake the on his face. But we watched it, and that's the first movie we've sat through with him that he hasn't had to use a restroom. Man, that and, awesome. And I don't know if you've seen it yet. No. I am. It's just a solid movie. I know I said that in text. It's just like you walk out and like the the. The plot is not super complex. It's not overly complicated. It's just... Well, it doesn't need to be Inception. I mean, No, it doesn't. But it was just yeah. like, you walk away and you're like, there, there's enough nostalgia to get the people who've seen it before. But if you haven't seen the first Top Gun or you didn't enjoy it, it was just a solid film. And I'd say it's even better than the original. It's far dare you. better. Um, and the score was intense and fantastic. I just, it's a great film and say what you will about Tom Cruise. Cause oh, yeah. he's kind of a goofy guy. Yeah. He's got some things, but <laughs> the guy makes a good movie. Oh, like, my gosh, there's not a lot of movies where I've watched it with Tom Cruise. I'm like, I wish I hadn't watched that. Like every movie that I watch, it's enjoyable. Yeah. And really, isn't that what you want out of going to a movie theater? Like, just something enjoyable to watch. And That's and, it. But I walked away just like, there's nothing about that movie that, that felt like it was getting, like, preachy about anything. And there's nothing about the movie that, that felt like it was, like, cheesy or um, just kind of like where you had to suspend belief too much. Mm-hmm. It was, it was like, it was just really good. And yeah, 
yeah, I felt good after walking up. I'm like, it was just some of the scenes. And at the beginning of the film is Tom Cruise on screen. And he kind of says, hey, you know, we put a lot of work into this. We did all this extra stuff for this movie. He said, this movie is for you. Like, kind of like, and and if there's a movie that's going to bring people back to the theaters in droves, and it has, obviously. Um, but I haven't, I haven't walked out of a theater enjoying a movie as much as that that one since like Endgame mm-hmm. or maybe Spider-Man No Way Home but <clears throat> yeah it was it was cool that's awesome it was really cool and uh, although somebody on TikTok saw some video they're like you know there's a few things going on that should clue us off we have this very pro-American military movie Nothing really super sad, and <laughs> so that. get ready because it means a war is coming. <laughs> yeah, you know, these are going to war, and this okay. is what's going to do it. Like, but here's another fun fact: it's wait. been uh, my wife and I got married 18 years ago. Yeah, and that was in 2004. I was there. And what year did Top Gun, the original movie, come out? Uh, 84? 86, which was 18 years before we got married. And what song played when we got introduced at the reception? It was the score from Top Gun. Top Gun theme. Yeah. Bow, bow, bow. It's 18, 18, and 18. Oh, man. Just so wild. you are the Illuminati. That's basically what you just admitted <laughs> to. On basically. camera, we hey, got him. One more thing, just while we're just talking about stuff. <laughs> sure. Let's uh, do it, man. Powering up the Large Hadron Collider again tomorrow. You know, they had me once. Fool me once with the black hole that's going to destroy the Earth. They did that in 2008. We're fine. No, they didn't. No, they, what they did was... What? Disclaimer, everyone. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But here's what people on, on all over are saying is that what they ran it the first time in 2012, 2008. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. That's when we first noticed the Mandela effect. So they think we merged two universes. And then <laughs> um, and then 2016, they're saying, you know, they think they people are thinking they opened up a portal with a bunch of. I don't know what happened, but that's when Trump got who's, elected. Yeah, who's they? You know, the Who people that think that uh, CERN did this. So now they're going to do it again. I hope they just merge us with a like a universe where there's a year of Jubilee every seven years. And, and Oh, uh, man, that'd be great. No, like, consumer retail debt or mortgages or student loans or anything like that. That's that's my hope. I like it. We'll see. I... I Oh, not tomorrow. Tuesday. Tuesday is when it happens. The 5th of July. Yeah, I mean, they got to wait until 4th of July is over. Yeah, don't step on it. No, don't you know steal how, our thunder by yeah, splitting the earth in half. Like in Brussels or something? You know how Brussels feels about in the forest. Switzerland. Oh, is it Switzerland? I don't nah, know. Doesn't matter. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> that's, that's what it takes to know where things are. <laughs> yep. That's my go-to. All right. Well, uh, let's get rolling into our main topic tonight. So, actually... When we were to Benedict Arnold's leg, I want to talk about that. But this discussion actually happened on TikTok um, with you, Eric. You started this. 
this topic. So a couple of days ago, you posted a video about casualties, the highest casualty rate in a single battle in American history, I believe. Correct. Yep. It was the first uh, infantry regiment in November of 1791 at the Battle of Wabash against the Northwestern Confederacy of Native Americans mm-hmm. out of 900 American men, uh, a total of 896 were casualties. Now, clarification on casualties is anything that causes a soldier to become unfit for combat. So that can include being killed. It can include being wounded to the point that you need medical attention and are no longer effective fighting force. It can include illness. It can include... um, Missing in action. Missing in action can include... uh, Prisoners, uh, deserters, anything that causes you to no longer be effective for the immediate campaign is a casualty or the immediate combat battle campaign, whatever it is. Um, So 99.56% casualty rate for that engagement, um, 896 out of 900. And then there was a few conversations that that sprouted from that. And one of them was about... The Battle of Little Bighorn, because there was an well, assumption. one of them, yeah. Somebody said Custer, wasn't that 100 yeah. percent? Right. Yeah. And so then I chimed in and go, no, it wasn't 100 um, percent. Custer's company, and, and, and he led five companies, they were annihilated. I mean, there might have been one or two survivors, um, anecdotally. Um, but then there were seven other companies that were part of that 7th Cavalry Regiment that those other seven companies, they took, they took wound, you know, they, they were, they took losses, they took casualties, but they weren't annihilated. Mm -hmm. So the casualty rate for little Bighorn for the whole 7th Cavalry was about 50% or so. And that led to a whole other sprouting conversation about, Custer, George Armstrong Custer. And some of the comments were like, well, I wish everybody was annihilated because it was part of the, the great Sioux war and the Indian wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so with that, that led to this discussion about, well, who was George Armstrong Custer? And then it led to, was he a villain or was he a hero or was he somewhere in between? Um, and, Kind of a lot of times when we have these discussions in history, um, oftentimes our default is to go, well, is this person good or bad? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, George Washington. Was George Washington good or bad? And those are the two options that you're given. Thomas Jefferson, Julius Caesar, I mean, anybody from history, were they good or bad? Um, but the reality is a lot murkier than those two binary options. And I think the people that like George Washington will do everything they can to amplify the things that they think make him good and minimize the things that would possibly make him bad. And then the opposite is true. People that hate George Washington would maximize the things that he did that would be considered bad and in hide the things that would be considered that he did good. And neither of those are really productive to the discourse. And so when I posed that question, some people responded and, you know, and those very binary choices that we see started to play out through the comment section of the videos. 
and you responded to a few of them. And one of the commenters said after a couple comments, he's like, he kind of backed off because he's like, well, just young people making reductionist statements about history. And, and then other people would be saying, well, we can't judge people from the past based on today's morals. And, and, and so it was just kind of this interesting discourse happening in the comments section. And it just kind of got me thinking more about that. And specifically, I think there's a great illustration about this topic in regards to Benedict Arnold. Because for those of you that don't know who Benedict Arnold was, Benedict Arnold served and fought in the American Revolutionary War. And initially, he served on the side of the United States, the colonies. Um, he fought at Fort Ticonderoga. He helped capture that with Ethan Allen. Uh, he was part of the Quebec expedition, uh, the Battle of the Cedars, Battle of Alcour Island, uh, Battle of Richfield, Siege of Fort Stanwix, and most famously, the Battles of Saratoga on September 19 and October 7, 1777. And during the second battle, the one in October 7, um, he, and it's interesting because he and Horatio Gates, the general in charge, um, did not get along at all. And so after the first battle on September 19th, Cust uh, Custer, Arnold was removed from command because um, he was just butting heads with Gates. And so on the second battle on October 7th um, against Burgoyne, he, Arnold was not in command and he just rode out anyway and like took the Balcares readout which was a huge turning point in the battle because once he took that, that exposed the British and uh, some Hessians tried to take it later, but were unable to. And then that forced um, Burgoyne's surrender. So it was a huge, it, it was the culmination of the Saratoga campaign, which was a big victory for the American colonists early in the war. And it, Benedict Arnold was instrumental in that. And during that last taking of the readout, his horse was shot out from under him. I think his leg got shot too. And then the horse fell on his leg and it broke and crushed his lower leg. And so he actually had to spend five months in hospital recovering from that injury. And although I think he was able to walk in, he was never able to fight that he was done being a battlefield commander. Um, and, but so like Benedict Arnold was this huge influential part of the early stages of the American Revolution. But after this battle, and as he's convalescing and recovering from his injury, um, and he's actually wounded three times in action um, when he was fighting for the Americans, um, he felt like there were some slights against him, perceived um, insults by the Continental Congress towards him. He would get passed over for command, stuff like that. And so then he started to correspond with the British and then eventually, I think it was about a year and a half later, he, he went turncoat. And his goal, because he was in charge of West Point, the fort at West Point, was he was going to surrender the fort to the British. Uh, this plot became, it, it unraveled, and then he fled on a frigate called the Vulture, um, which is ironic. Um, and, and then he fought for the British for the remainder of the war, but uh, it was mostly like raids and stuff for the British and nothing, obviously that turned the tide of the battle. Um, and so you've got this thing and, and Benedict Arnold um, at Saratoga 
in, I believe, New York. Um, there's a erected in 1887, so about 100 years after the Battle of Saratoga, is a monument called Boot Monument, and it honors Benedict Arnold's foot because that was injured at the Battle of Saratoga before he became a turncoat. And so his his foot has full military honors, or his boot has full military honors, whereas Benedict Arnold, the man, is a is America's first great traitor. Um, and so you've got this interesting dichotomy, because on one end, Benedict Arnold is an absolute American hero, and what he did at the Battle of Saratoga is heroic and helped the Americans win the Revolutionary War. On the other hand, he is a turncoat. And he betrayed the cause that he was fighting for. So who is Benedict Arnold? Is he a villain? Is he a hero? Is he something else? Is he both? You know, I, I think it provides an interesting discussion point, which is really how this whole thing got started. Um, well, Benedict Custer. Arnold is a bit of a different case, we might say, because... I don't know anyone that's that's going into matters of his personal life or beliefs or anything like that to say he's no longer worthy of any honor. Like this is stuff that Benedict Arnold, it all comes down to what he did before he was a traitor and what he did after. Right. And trying to weigh mm -hmm. those two against each other. That one's about the most clean cut hero versus villain story we can find. We can list out. But even that, there's people that would say, well, he's a traitor and that's all he ever is. Like, like yeah. once you make that villainous turn, that's all you ever were. It's like, well, no, there's a whole other story that you're just ignoring. So, you know, what's interesting is I didn't know the story of Benedict Arnold before his being a traitor. Now, I read, uh, I believe I that was in... Uh, Gosh, it was either in my book on Washington or Hamilton. They're right there. Um, I think it was Hamilton that was sent by Washington to go secure Arnold's surrender. Once they, because they found papers, right, that were explaining mm -hmm. what he was going to do. And I think it may have been Hamilton that was sent by Washington to go arrest him. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, but when they went, it was just Benedict Arnold's wife. And she's like, what are you talking about? Uh, this is all news to me. And she played like the victim and she like had like a fainting spell. And the soldiers were like all distraught and they're like stressed out. Meanwhile, she's actually like stalling them on purpose. Uh, Cause he's working his, his way out of there. Um, it must've been his, his second wife. Yeah. Cause his first wife died. Um, before he turned traitor, and then he was married again. Yeah, I mean, it was whoever he was married to at the moment. Peggy Shippen. That's who it was, Peggy right. Shippen. And, uh, yeah, so I, I really have only heard the story of Benedict Arnold, the traitor. And mm -hmm. so that's the story through my education that was most prominent. He's a traitor. Mm -hmm. But hearing the story of what he did beforehand... You know, if he if he single handedly helped turn the tide of a battle that prevented the U.S. from surrendering very early on, maybe we need to revisit that. Yeah, 
even so, his his story is a little more clear cut than others. Than like, oh, it's very clear cut. Yeah, I mean, there's a very distinct it's demarcation. Like, it's it's, it's, uh, it, it's it's his actions before and his actions after. We're not talking about Thomas Jefferson, who we know his actions in in the public sphere and what mm-hmm. he did versus how he actually dealt with slavery, how he actually participated in it, uh, the method by which he participated in it. Mm-hmm. Like we, we'd say that's almost a personal thing rather than his public contributions. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the easy word to throw out is he was being hypocritical, which I would well, say. Sure. Sure. But, 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 but it was almost like, like you said, I think what you said with the public persona and the private persona, they're two very different with Jefferson. They're two very yeah. different personas. Um, I, I don't think he was a different person in those cases, but, but no, he was very, no, because he was very like he, when he would invite people to Monticello um, for dinner parties and like food would just appear from the dumb waiters and all this stuff. And like, it was almost like Mm -hmm. magic. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, it was just a household full of slaves making everything appear to be magic. Like, and so in that, like literally it was like what he was presenting to the public, he had to hide away all the dirty yeah. stuff he was doing to make it look so effortless. Right. I, when I mean public persona though, I'm like his, his public contributions, right. We're talking about like the writing, the documentation, oh, sure. those type of things, yeah, his yeah. leadership, which you would look at those things in a vacuum and say, these are some of the, the highest, most virtuous things given to the Republic were by him. On the other hand, while he was writing these things, while he was writing things like, I don't think slavery is a moral good, he's participating in it and unable to find a way out of participating in it or unwilling to. Yeah, and so yeah, that's the good point. Whereas, whereas Benedict Arnold, it was he as a soldier did heroic things and he as a soldier did traitorous things. And so that's yeah. where his story is a little more that that cut is very clean. Thomas Jefferson, it's a little bit different. All the other people will talk about very different in terms of. Well, and uh, Custer, I don't think Custer ever. I, Custer is probably the most consistent of the three we've discussed so far. Custer was just Custer. Like <laughs> he was reckless. He was brash. He was incredibly brave. And during the civil war that worked really, really well for him. And it got him, I think he eventually rose to major general um, uh, during the Civil War. And at the Battle of Gettysburg, he engaged Jeb Stuart's cavalry, which was trying to sneak around to the rear of the Union line while Pickett's charge was happening. And his bravery and his his counter charge helped stop Jeb Stuart from doing that, which possibly could have turned the Battle of Gettysburg against the Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't all just Custer. Not by any stretch, but it was a big part of the success on day three of the Battle of Gettysburg. And that worked really, really well for Custer. Well, Custer just kept doing those things throughout his career. He like he never stopped being the brash cavalry commander. It's just um, he was court-martialed, I believe, in 1868 for dereliction of duty. Um, So he's, he's maverick. He's oh yeah, maverick. he's a maverick. Like, yeah, he's like yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, yeah, should no. Um, 
but that's who he is. Like he was, he was consistent. So the person never changed. It wasn't like a Benedict Arnold was like, I'm going to be a traitor now. Or Thomas Jefferson who writes these things about liberty and freedom. And the meanwhile, holding people in bondage, it's I'm George Armstrong Custer. And this is how I roll. And then he took that to the, the Indian wars, the great Sioux war. And he slaughtered native Americans. He slaughtered an entire Cheyenne village Well, not an entire, but he slaughtered, Hundreds of Cheyenne in a village in Oklahoma um, took men or took women and children captive and use them as like basically uh, human shields. Um, and then in the Battle of Little Bighorn, I mean, it was the same thing. He was charging in just like he did in, in the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, only this time, the, the Sioux and Lakota were able to surround his and the other five companies and and annihilate them. So, uh, so he, he was always Custer. Like uh, that wasn't much different, but the things that he did. So in the civil war, he was a hero because the civil war, he was fighting on the union side. And I believe, and I would say most people in America believe that was the right side to be on. I'm sure there's still lost cause folks out there, but, um, Winning, and especially at Gettysburg, the most famous battle of the Civil War, um, that makes him a hero. But then over here on, on the Great Sioux War and the Indian Wars, um, although the U.S. won those conflicts, um, we've had, and I don't mean this in a bad way, we've had a revision to our history. And we said, well, is what we did in the West especially to the to the Sioux and Lakota and just to the Native Americans in the West in general, is what we did right. Was that, were we on the right side of history there? So that's and we where... revised that perspective. So when I think of George Custer and I think of the hero tale, I also think very narrowly in that he's a hero because he had, he took his last stand, right? That's how it, it was kind of pitched to us when mm -hmm. we first learned about Custer. It was Custer in his last stand. He did this very heroic thing by charging in and being surrounded by his enemy, and he took his last stand there, and that's heroic. And that's kind of yeah. what's sold to you. And then then you get into, well, A, is what, he, is what he was doing in that moment heroic? Was it brave? And I'd say, sure, to both of those. There's a question mark in there, too. I heard it. There's a... What level of responsibility does he have in the policy decisions of the United States in 1870s in dealing with those countries, in, in dealing with the Native populations in these areas? Because, I mean, I don't, he doesn't sound like the guy who's going to... Take a real stand and say, no, I think it's wrong what we're doing. Yeah. But it's it's just that kind of like it's heroic, but um but it was an unjust position for him to be in to begin with. He shouldn't have been there. Right? Exactly. It's a good that's a good point. Yeah. I, and, I would agree with and that. I and I think, you know, uh, General Sherman, who is over in charge of like, the overarching campaign, especially with the Sioux um, and the same General Sherman march, you know, march to the sea in the south. Um, I mean, it was Sherman's actions 
or Sherman's directives and then Custer and Sherman's subordinates followed the orders. But even then Sherman's directives were at the behest of Grant or yeah, I think, I think Grant was president at the time, 1876. So Sherman's directors are at the behest of Grant and in the United States Congress, right? And Grant yeah. and the Congress probably like, we're going to subdue these native American nations one way or the other. Sherman, you go figure it out. Sherman's like, well, I got a guy, uh, you know, and I mean, that's probably in part how the policy happened. But I also think Custer, based on what I've read, I think he was, I, I, I think he was totally for that. I think one, he liked being in battle. I think that's where he was at his best. Um, and so he didn't really care who the enemy was. I think he's more of like point and I go sort of thing. But then also um, his treatment of Native Americans, even, you know, peaceful villages and women and children was horrendous. Um, and so while that may have worked in certain circumstances in the Civil War, and it, I guess, was effective um, in the war against the Native American tribes, but on a moral stance, it's not a moral good. And I think that's where we get into people say, well, we can't judge the past based on today's morals. Like, well, I only have my morals to judge them on. I I thought that was an interesting question. That's come up multiple times in the past week. One was in response to my, my uh, video on Valerian. And yes, you know, my question of whether the Romans were civilized or not. Mm -hmm. And then also, in you know, in terms of Custer, right? Can we judge him? And I think also to Thomas Jefferson and to George Washington. So a lot of people that you, we can look at people in in the past century as well. Um, can we judge them based on our morals? Like, well, first of all, we can do whatever we want. So let's set that aside. Are we right in doing that? So I thought about that Ish. a little bit today. General Sherman um, and Thomas Jefferson are operating, and this includes all of our founding fathers and every American who's ever been in a position to make a moral choice. They are operating under the same founding principles that we still adhere to today, and one of which is um, all men are created equal. And you can say, well, they meant all white men. Sure, that's probably how they understood it. That's not what they wrote. And no, I know it says not all men and women, but we understand that that men can sometimes be everyone. And I understand that they didn't include it, right? The idea is that they understood philosophically that all humans are created equal with an intrinsic value. And that idea goes back about 2,000 years, both to Judaism and to early Christianity and the ethic that those put forward that People, humans, are made in the image of God and therefore have innate value. All of them. Mm -hmm. So, can I judge Thomas Jefferson, even though he was a man living in the South, among slavery his whole life, seen as the only economic choice, can we judge him based on what we consider our moral stance? Well, our moral stance is the same one that he stood on. It's in fact the same one that he wrote and continued yeah. to write about for years after he wrote the Declaration of Independence. 
Mm-hmm. He understood the moral framework on which we are judging him. And he, he wrestled with it. He saw the contradiction in his life. So can we judge him? Absolutely. Because he judged himself, right? Um, does that mean his contributions are not worthwhile? No, much like Benedict Arnold, just because he turned traitor later on, doesn't mean we like forfeit Saratoga. Yeah, you can't. I mean, that's the thing is you can't good or bad. You don't want to ignore the part of the story you don't like. That's also right. And, And that's where it's like, and like you said, with the morals things, that is like, because I saw those comments kept popping up and it was interesting because when we were in college and we were learning how to write history and part of that was a historiography, right? And so you would review resources, you'd review primary sources, secondary sources, sometimes tertiary sources. And you would say, okay, this event. Joel was our tertiary source, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Joel, (laughs) he was, he knew the real truth, but um, we would say, Okay, let's talk about Custer. So we'd say, all right, the Battle of Little Bighorn, here are the primary sources, here's correspondences, here are letters, here's battle after action reports, here's physical evidence from the site. These are our primary sources. This is what tells us here. And then you have people writing about it, what happened at the time, right? And be like, well, Custer was a blowhard and he was brash and this was bound to happen. Apparently Grant wasn't surprised that this happened to Custer. Um so you're like, okay, so this is this is what people thought of Custer at the time, and then maybe a generation or two later, you'd say, all right, here's what historians a generation or two after said about Custer, and here's what their impression was of him as a man, as a commander, whatever it was, and so maybe the 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 standard by which they judge Custer a generation or two later was different than at the time of his death, and then now we have our you know today. And obviously our, our morals and standards have changed a bit, but we're able to review. We can say, well, here's what people back then thought of Custer. Here's what people 50 years ago thought of Custer. And here's what we think of Custer. And and like you said, Eric, the, the morals and the principles that we were founded upon, at least in America, they haven't changed really. They might change in execution. They might change by degree. By what? By, do, by application, right? By application, yeah. These? But, you know, like Judeo-Christian principles and, you know, being a Christian, it's pretty easy for me to look at the New Testament and see, well, what does Jesus say, right? Love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed, you know, like all these things. It's about, not particularly complicated, yeah, how we should treat each other. Figure it out. <laughs> so it's not like the moral, and it's not like we look at that and go, oh, well, that's just disgusting. So, how could they possibly believe? Now, there are instances where 2,000 years ago, where our opinions on certain things, homosexuality being one of them, has changed. And there are texts in the Bible that we go, we don't really agree with that anymore. But, and not all of us by any means, but uh, that's an example where you could say, well, we don't agree that particular thing that they're saying here, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But generally, the morals, and I think C.S. Lewis said the same thing. And I don't remember if it was from Mere Christianity or The Problem of Pain. He goes, basically, there's just some things that if you look across any culture, they've all got the same basic morality. Mm-hmm. 
like, and they say the application is different or, you know, how, how lenient or strict they are with that may vary from culture to culture, but in general, they all have the same morality. Theft is bad. Now, maybe how you define theft in one culture versus another is different, Mm -hmm. but the idea of taking someone else's property without the correct permission is bad. Murder is bad. Now, how you define murder uh, and, and what constitutes murder in a different society may change, but the idea, you can't just kill anyone you want anytime you want for any reason you want. That's that general tenet still holds true. Yeah, and today. so there's and a it's co- always held true. There, there's a couple of these pieces that kept coming back to me, like especially when I was asked if we can judge people, and I guess it comes down to in American history, is I that one's a little bit different because we have a continuity of of of. Uh, not administration, but we have a continuity of government. Like we've had the same government and institutions since 1783, specifically with the Constitution, till mm-hmm. now. And so every act that's occurred under the watchful eye of that institution of government um, is my problem. And should so, be so, so we have to judge them because they're ours. They're part of our continuity of history. It's not like, it's not like me saying, you know, crucifixion was pretty bad. And the Romans, that was pretty bad because except for the fact that I'm now 2% Italian, (laughs) I don't, I don't have no real inheritance or heritage in, in their system of, of crucifying slaves outside of Rome. But I do have, this inheritance of a sort because I have been born into and adopted the system we're in, even if my, my family came over later, um, you know, throughout the 1800s, and even if none of them participated in slavery or participated in uh, drone strikes on tents in the middle of Yemen or um, carried out, you know, whatever awful firebombing of Dresden uh, regardless mm-hmm. of if the ends justified any of those things, those are literally part of the continuity of government that, that I participate in. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's there's some, yeah, we have to be able to judge it. Mm-hmm. Just like I can judge myself on my choices I've made because they were mine, right? Like this is ours. These are our decisions. And they weren't necessarily the ones that we made when we were here, but we're part of this. We're part of what has the, the fact that it's the United States and and I'm trying to make that, that exists and existed when these things happen. So there's some accountability or responsibility or some understanding that this is ours. We're holding on to this rather than, you know, what, what the, uh, the Romans did 2000 years ago. Again, I don't, no, if I'm related. Well, to and you can even look at other countries, right? Germany being a great example mm-hmm. because of World War II, the Holocaust, right? And you could say, well, what about Germany? They did well, but we aren't Germany. Yeah, like and also, Germany's got their own history to deal with, and they've got their own accountability to take up for for what happened in the past. But we're not Germany. One of the ways we've got to deal with America. Germany <laughs> like, dealt with what happened in World War II is 
that government was dismantled. Mm-hmm. That party was made illegal. Like they they took that thing down to the foundation. So it's not like, and the Germany of today is not born out of, you know, Nazi Germany, World War II. It's born out of uh, a split Germany that lasted for 60 years that had to like be formed back together. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's different. And now like you could, what about Russia? I mean, so that makes you think about modern day Russia is mm-hmm. modern day Russia the inheritor of the Soviet Union. Which I mean, is the, the inheritor of the Tsardom. Right. So, I mean, you might say ideologically, no, but the fact that your president was a former KGB member, you know, maybe there's a few holdouts. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I do think that there's there's certain things that we can judge. And I'd say. Um, you know, I'm reading this book, uh, The Silk Roads, and I read this chapter about the slave trade through like that occurred in the Middle East and North Africa into the Kivian Rus or the Viking Rus. Like the yes. the, the distances it stretched were wild. And the, the amount of slaves that were moved across these lands is unbelievable to the point that and this was in like 800 800, 900, whoever was in Rome, it wasn't an emperor. It was like, uh, I want to say it may have been a pope who had cl- close ties to whoever was ruling Rome at the time, even though Rome had fallen back was in 476. No, it was like, I want to say it was like Heraclitus or something. But he basically, and I think it was the pope. Well, if it's in or, 800 AD, that's right after Charlemagne, so... Of the proto-Holy Roman Empire is so forming at this what point. What was interesting was this person, I have to go back and find it, he called for an end to the slave trade in Rome because slavery was, this kind of slavery, with people being moved as cattle, was incompatible with Christianity. Now, if you're going to be a person who says, America was a Christian nation, or founded as a Christian nation, <laughs> you're yeah. going to be one of those people, which is fine. I've said that before too. I'm not, I'm not innocent, but if you're going to be that person, know that, uh, Christians were calling for the end of slavery in like eight and 900 AD because it was well, inhumane. in the time of Jefferson abolitionists and the manumission society. Like, yeah, it wasn't like everyone, uh, thinking, oh, Quakers. the way of things, the Quakers were vehemently anti-slavery. Now the Quakers had other issues, but they were vehemently anti-slavery. Yeah. They thought it was unchristian. It was part of their yeah. doctrine. John Adams I mean, was a an abolitionist. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was part of the Manumission Society. Yeah, there's abolitionists, and, and, and I mean, he grew up in one of the worst spots for slaves or for enslaved people in uh, on in the Caribbean. Like he he watched people die in the street from working so hard. Yeah. That's what he grew up with. So when he came to the colonies, he's like, there's a potential to actually fix this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, not so you don't like, even have to judge. You don't even have to judge them based on our standards, their own standards yeah. in that day. That's we're why telling them what you're doing is wrong. Jefferson knew it was wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. 
It didn't exactly. stop him. Because he was also, like all of us, it's really hard to take a stand when you're going to take a hit economically. Well, and that's what's interesting about that is because I, you know, I wrote that uh, piece a while back about Jefferson. It's like it's almost like he became addicted to slavery because it sounded like when he was younger, he's like, I am going to emancipate my slaves. But then the longer he had them and the more profitable he realized it was, the more he couldn't get rid of them. Like he just, he was addicted to the and, prestige, and, the money. I don't yeah, know what you, it was. And you can justify it. I'm sure he'd be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm treating them better. They're better off this way anyways. At yeah, one that's point, what he, he told himself. At one point he wrote in a letter that, you know, maybe they're not actually in t- as intelligent as the rest of us. So, you know. Uh, it's for their own benefit. For their own good. Like these are things that, that people justified the condition in order mm-hmm. to continue it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when people and they're not saying it, I think, to be antagonistic, they're just generally saying, like, well, how can we judge them based on today's standards, which is a fair question. Yeah. It's like you don't have to because today's standards are not that new and they existed all throughout history. And you can see examples of that all throughout history. We are literally Um, just applying a very simple principle in you know, yeah. We're trying to to kind of widen the breadth of that principle to say uh, what is true now, which is that all humans have innate dignity and rights. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're as we expand that now. The issue we're we're running into is your the fact that you have innate dignity, that you have innate rights, that you have all these. And the freedom to do what you want within a certain uh, framework where you don't harm anyone else is that we run into those who say, I, I don't, I don't think what you're doing is good and I don't agree with it, Mm -hmm. but you're free to do it, but I'm not going to participate in it. And that's where a lot of the, and I, I really think that's happening really at the edges of society, like in, in small percentages where that's running, running into issues, but it's, it's the same principle that we had when the nation was founded, that all people are created equal. And that principle existed well before that. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, and, and like you said, it's not a new principle. It is just being applied in wider ways and sometimes a little bit different ways. And that's where I think some yeah. of the struggle is happening now. Yeah, and it's always, and I think the what you're saying here and, um, is it's always been, there's this tension when it comes to our liberty. Um, and I don't mean that in the defined liberties of the constitution. I mean, like our liberty, our, our freedom of movement, our freedom of, you know, um, our, our freedom to pursue happiness or to pursue certain things in life or to believe, you know, uh, certain faiths or not believe in faith. all those things that we have 
And it's like, well, my, my freedom ends where yours begins. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, well, where, where's that line? And like, we want that super defined and like nice and bold, that line where my freedom ends and yours begins. It's like, but it's never been a very specific line. It's always had this tension back and forth. Right. And then that's where, you know, when, when it, those, those come into conflict, I mean, we can create laws to help clear that up a bit, but usually the laws tend to muddy it even more. <laughs> so, or we can take it to trial and, you know, and say, well, let's have a jury or a judge decide and, and, and see like, we'll state our case. Yeah. And then, then the judgment comes down and you have to work within those judgments. Um, yeah. Just because something it, is wrong, doesn't mean that it will be illegal. And just because yeah. something is legal, doesn't make it right. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. So, and we like to use legality. Well, it's legal. So that must mean it's good. And it's like, well, hold, hold on. <laughs> like, and, and so I think that's the problem. And, but it's a, again, that's a conflict that we've always had as humans is where does, where does my liberty end and where does yours begin? Because it's easy to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or life, liberty, and property, right? As long as you don't infringe my right to life, my right to liberty, and my right to my own property, be it physical or intellectual, uh, then we're good. It's like, well, yeah, everybody can agree with that statement, but in practice, practice, yeah, that's a far more nuanced. I mean, it, it gets real into the weeds, um, and that's what we're you know in America's we're undergoing that change right now because there's a lot of you know change going on, especially on the sh- social end of things. Um, on what is my identity, right? Like, mm-hmm. and not just sexual, but you know, what is my identity? Who am I as a person? Um, and that has added a whole new layer to this, this tension. Um, and we're as a culture, as a nation, we're wrestling with that. Um, yeah, and, those- and then laws get written and then all these, you know, and laws get written and more often than not, the laws are, less than helpful regardless of or they're the poorly intent. written right like laws are usually yeah. not written very well um not laws when it comes to stuff like this especially now like it's you know laws when it comes to like building codes and stuff like that those are like that that that's a lot more but you talked about identity can, right <clears throat> and how we everyone wants to like have an identity which is natural, right? Like we, we want to yeah. identify with something so that we can be part of it. And that's, that's, that can be very helpful in our current system though. My need to identify with a group politically leads me to one of two legi- like legitimate sources and so if my identity is based on this you will one sacrifice issue, your own personal identity to fit in with that group. Well, that and that that goes with with all groups. But it, like between Democrats and Republicans, my identity to say I really believe strongly in this issue means I have to go along with the rest of these issues in this group, mm-hmm. even though I think they don't do a good job of that or. Um, here's my here's the thing that I that I like on this side, mm-hmm. uh, and they just they fail to implement anything when they have a majority. They just refuse to. So 
that's that's that kind of seeking identity. You know, when people say, well, you're just not you, but when people say, well, you're just playing identity politics, I'm like, both parties, all that is, is identity politics. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing truly substantive, substantive about at least the two major parties or most of them. That's like, I agree with this policy or this platform or whatever. It's all about identity and it's all about what team am I on? And I don't really care what the stance of my team is as long as we quote unquote win. And it's so and and but that's not what's ever guaranteed to us. What's sold to us every single time is, and I know that there's positive ads out there for people, and and some people say, "Hey, this is what we're aiming for," but more often than not, it's if side A gets their way, here's all the bad things that are going to happen. I mean, Lyndon Johnson B destroyed. Yeah, <laughs> Johnson dis- destroyed Barry Goldwater's campaign by showing an ad with a nuke going off and saying, "This is what's going to happen if you go for Goldwater." <laughs> like that's how he won. He's like, "We're going to get nuked," <laughs> like, and it was hyperbolic and spurious, but it was effective. Like, yeah. it's, like I mean, that's that's. You know, that's how you win. And it's that's again, that's not a new thing. If you've seen the political ads from the 17 and 1800s, they're just as ruthless and here's, as anything we can think of today. If I say they're coming for more of your rights, you don't even know which yeah, political I mean, party I'm talking I, about. Like, yeah, <laughs> but you know it'll work, right? You just know that one of them. They're coming for and then rights. fill that with the noun that you want to use. Guns. Uh, reproductive rights, whatever it is that, you know, they're coming for this. Who's they? I don't know, but they're coming for oh, it and them. they're going to take it. Same people that are running CERN. <laughs> yeah. Like, see, they, but that's right. That's how effective it is. We don't even have to, you don't even have to, to actually make an example, but you know that that's, yeah. that's the fear that they install. They're coming for this. If, if you don't vote for color aqua or not, not, it's too close. You don't you don't vote for this group. Yeah, all the bad things that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like no. Here's what's actually going to happen. A few seats will flip this way. A few seats will flip that way. Maybe the administration changes. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe a few Supreme Court justices. Uh, Ten years from now, we're just doing the same thing. Yeah, that's it. And we're going to be irritated by something. <laughs> We are, you know, and and that's fine to have that tension within the country because it's a big country with a unfathomable amount of diversity in opinion, in background, in culture, in religion, and it's good to have that tension because we need to work things out as a people, and it's okay to have people be like, I just don't agree with what you do or how you do it. But it's not infringing on my right to life, liberty, or property. So I, I'm, I can disagree with you all I want, but I'm not going to try to stop you from doing it. But we don't want to have those discussions anymore. We don't want to have those debates between each other, at least in a in a genuine way, in an in an honest way. Um, it's all about talking points and who won the debate or, you know, all that stuff. It's like, well, that's not constructive. 
I mean, it's I, not I would good. love to get onto the House floor or the Senate floor and be like, can you raise your hand if you understand what MMT is? Anyone? Not DMT, put your hand down. Uh, <laughs> like, how many of you understand how a reserve currency works? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take 20 minutes, and I brought Mrs. Kelton here. She's going to walk you through it. And then when we're done, I'm going to tell you something. If we can afford this war, we can afford this program. <laughs> if we exactly. Can, if we can send money to Ukraine. We can fund this, right? Like, and, and, but I know those things don't actually work out because to provide something like that costs so many of those lawmakers their, their elections down the line. Yeah. But I think when it comes to, and this is... Going back to Custer and Arnold and Jefferson and any historical figure, the thing that I love about these discussions is, one, we can remove ourselves from it, right? I think a lot of times when it comes to politics, we just get lost in the heat of the debate and we lose all reason. But if I can look at George Custer and I can fairly evaluate his life and say, yeah, he did some terrible things and he should be judged for those. But he also did some things that were I would say truly admirable and heroic, especially in the Civil War. And he can be judged for that, too. I think if we can do that and we can remove ourselves from the heat of the instant and and focus on the historical perspective and just practice having those discussions in an honest way. Yeah, it will. It helps me like it helps me clear my mind because Mm -hmm. looking at social media, looking at the news, it's just maddening. It's like, well, hold on, I need to like figure out what do I actually think about something? And can I actually look at something and judge it for what it is and not what someone's telling me it is? And yeah, I, I, that's why I love looking at these historical characters and, and having that perspective. I thought a little bit more about Thomas Jefferson. And we, we consider, and I don't know how many slaves he had. Um, There's and, a few hundred. And, and, you know, I don't know exactly how all of them were treated. I know what happened on his deathbed is that a lot were released. But I wonder, without his written contribution to the Declaration of Independence, without his ideas springing forth into the New Republic. How would we it, judge him? Well... No. Does does his do his actions and contributions lead to a quicker uh, abolition of slavery? Or How do you mean? Like, I mean, his words were used by abolitionists. Like, look, all men are created equal. Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson wrote that. Yeah. So these ideas that he wrote down and, and and it may have been shared by all the founding fathers, but the fact that he wrote them means something. Does that help lead to a quicker resolution to the slavery issue? Or does it lengthen it? Like, did he long term save more lives than he cost? 
And I know it's like, it's not a math problem, but. Well, it's interesting because, um, at, what is it? After the Revolutionary War, Great Britain abolished slavery, I think, in 1801. Yeah, it was very early on. Yeah. And so had the United States lost and they remained part of the British Empire, would they, well, one, would that manumission have happened in 1801 still? And if it had, then that would have ended slavery in the Americas very quickly. And, and I don't want to but, be super negative there here, but knowing that the United Kingdom did not have an economic stake in the South after 1783. Or, yeah, well, and that's part of it is that it was easier for them to abolish slavery that early because the money that they were making, they no longer were making yeah. at, from their colonies. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, so had Jefferson not written all men are created equal and the American colony still won the revolutionary war. Would that have led to the abolition of slavery either sooner, later, or, or I mean, it, it just would not have been his contribution. Right, because it those would have been his, but I'm I don't just know. curious if his if the good that comes from his contributions, how how good is yeah, it I, compared to him participating in slavery? Well, I think the part of. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think part of the problem with Jefferson's legacy is that the abolitionists are saying, look, you wrote all men are created equal, but you're not living up to that. And then the the pro-slavery side would be like, well, yeah, he has slaves, but it's Thomas Jefferson. Like, <laughs> like the guy wrote all men are created equal. So he can't be doing something wrong because yeah. what, like they were able to wreck their um, – the cognitive dissonance between his, his words and his deeds, they were able to justify because he's Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. And um, so it's interesting. Cause I, I mean, I, I don't have an answer. I can't honestly, I can't fathom how things would have been different if, if it wasn't Jefferson making that, but um, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I really don't know, but it's a great question. Yeah, well, that's apparently all we have is just questions after questions, right? Yeah, we don't. Welcome to Dadbot History, where we don't have any answers. That's basically the theme of our podcast, um, which maybe that's okay. Yeah. Socrates got famous for just asking questions. Yeah, he also got um, sentenced to death. Yeah, I know. He also got he also got yeeted by the powers to be, but. <laughs> Um, well, with that, let's uh, let's wrap up. So thank you guys for joining us uh, for tonight's episode of Dad Bond History. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, follow us wherever you watch or listen to podcasts. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Uh, thank you guys so much, and have a great day in history. 